0: I say, everything's gonna be alright. I say, everything's gonna be be alright. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio. It's Friday, May 6th. 2016 this week is episode 413 my name is radio joe hughes here with me in the studio d at the controls is our engineer john you gotta have faith and joining us from studio c back in mckee's rocks is the z-man cliff zlotnick
1: good afternoon joe and john hi everybody
0: good day cliff this week we've got dr brett singer from the lawrence berkeley national labs but before we get started, we can't do the show without our sponsors.
1: John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at their website, j-o-n-d-o-n.com. That's johndon.com.
0: Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com.
1: IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net.
0: And Particles Plus, they are engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters, air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com, count on us.
1: Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products.
0: And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. All right, let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question.
1: Thanks, Joe. Win the cool prize by out-competing fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Either email it to CZLotnick at CS.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer via your computer. Congratulations. to <laughs> Andrew Gunzer. Certified Safety Consulting in St. Louis, Missouri, for the first correct answer to last week's IQ Radio trivia question. The, the, the trivia question for Friday, May 6, 2016, has been sponsored by Ideas, LLC, the solution chemistry company creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Now for this week's IQ Radio trivia question. Name the scientists at the University of California who created the model of how large-scale science should be pursued. Back to you, Joe.
0: Okay, we've got Dr. Brett Singer with us today. He's the group leader of the Indoor Environment, Energy Analysis, and Environmental Impacts Division at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratories. He's also, let's see, the principal investigator in the Whole Building Systems Group in the Building Technologies and Urban Systems Division. He conceives and leads research projects related to air pollutant emissions and physical chemical processes and pollutant exposures in both outdoor and indoor environments, aiming to understand real-world processes and systems that affect air pollution exposures. Let's we've got some music for Dr. Singer. Science
2: is awesome, and I love it so. There's still lots and lots of things science don't know.
0: There've been major discoveries throughout history, but this
2: universe of ours is still one great big mystery.
0: Okay. I like that one, Cliff. All right. Uh, Dr. Singer, do we have you on the line? I'm here. All right. Great to have you with us. Uh, met you and more formally. I know we met somewhere along the way at the PM 2.5 workshop in D.C. By the way, for listeners, I put the link to the website from that workshop in the show announcement and in the uh, links at the bottom of the show announcement because all the Papers are up now. They have videos from that conference. It was a great conference. And um, I'm wondering, you know, with re- respect to research, how did you first get started in, and interested in research?
2: Uh, well, first of all, let me thank you for having me and happy to answer that question. Uh, I actually started in outdoor air quality, and I got an interest from, uh, like many people, personal experience. I was going to college at Temple University in Philadelphia. Uh, which is in uh, slightly north of the downtown part of the city, and I was living uh, in the west part of the city, and I had a bike across the center of the city to to get back and forth to uh, to to school every day. And I noticed that uh, biking home through a- afternoon rush hour traffic, by the time I got home, I'd feel a little lightheaded every day. And I said, "Huh, that doesn't work out so well." So I started uh, figuring out that that was the air pollution from all the vehicles that I was breathing in and uh, started out working on vehicle emissions as my uh, graduate work at UC Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley. And then while there, I met one of the uh, true uh, greats of indoor air quality research, uh, Dr. Uh, William Nazaroff, Bill Nazaroff from UC Berkeley, And he uh, helped advise me as a graduate student. And then when I finished there, uh, there was a project that he had uh, on secondhand tobacco smoke. uh, And it was with a a researcher, some researchers up here at Lawrence Berkeley Lab, uh, Dr. Joan Daisy, uh, who's uh, unfortunately no longer with us, but uh, another truly great researcher. And I came up to Berkeley, up to the uh, Lawrence Berkeley Lab, to start working on secondhand smoke. And I'll tell you a little bit about that if you're interested, but uh that basically got me going on this course and I still dabble on outdoor air quality occasionally, certainly uh, it's very important to indoor air quality, but I've mostly been working on in indoor air quality since coming up to the lab, and that was in nineteen ninety
0: eight and you know we we commonly do shows, we call these the research to practice shows. We, we've got a lot of practitioners, both remediation people, uh, consultants that deal with indoor air quality issues. And um, I guess, what, what is the most important thing for these indoor environmental quality professionals to understand when it comes to choosing the type of research they should, you know, grasp and, and make part of their practice? Oh, that's an interesting
2: question, and I'm always reluctant to say the most important uh, thing, because I think it really varies. Uh, Certainly, uh, when you're out there uh, working with clients, uh, I think the most important research is the research that's relevant to the client you're working for right now. Uh, I know uh, when I go uh, to the doctor or consult a professional about something related to my health, I'm, I'm interested in what they know about that. So, I think Mainly, it's to uh, I'd say that the overarching message I would would say is there are many great resources out there, uh, and and I know a lot of practitioners make use of those resources because they're calling me all the time, and my colleagues, and I think that's really great, um, and they know they go to to our websites, uh, but there really are lots of resources. Uh, certainly, the scientific literature. Our job as as, as professional researchers is to try to. Publish uh, our research, put it out there in the public sphere in a way that is uh, demonstrates that it's high quality and basically true and accurate. Um, and then, so so accessing those journal articles is uh, sometimes a good idea. It's certainly good as the kind of uh, ground truth, but but there's also many uh, resources that are available to translate that research into kind of usable nuggets. When, when we do work here in our group, we really try to do that right there in the scientific paper, but uh, I know that we're not always as successful as we would like to be, and I know my colleagues uh, try also, but sometimes it's really helpful. EPA, the, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, has an Indoor Environments Division that does a lot of work of translating scientific research into uh, practical information for uh, both the public and for uh, the professionals in the industry, the California Resources Board. Um, and then there's lots and lots of sort of independent organizations that do do, do that sort of thing. We have a, a scientific findings resource bank on uh, the LBL website, and I can uh, give you that that link as well so you can post that up on your site uh, for your listeners. Um, so basically, I would say uh, there's lots and lots and lots of research out there. It's, it's not always directly applicable uh, because uh, you, you can't uh, you know, uh preconceive of every question that can be answered, but I think there's a lot of really smart people working in this area, and I'm always uh really amazed at how well they are at translating the available research into practice into the questions that they're facing so um, I'd say you know go out and search for those resources and 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 if you if you can't find them then you know call the EPA and their Environment division and ask them what's available and call uh, your state uh if you know if you have a state health department or state uh, uh, agency. Try to try to try to look for the resources because I think there are there's a lot out there.
0: You know, you, you mentioned a lot of government agencies and, and groups that are you know oftentimes funded by government agencies, but a lot of the research that or what people call research that practitioners will see might be in a, a trade journal or in a, a publication and, and oftentimes it, it's sponsored by manufacturers of the equipment when when people see something like that, what what should they be looking? I mean, obviously, we're going to have to be a little cautious when we're looking at. Sure. But what other things do that we look for that are key things to look for within that research?
2: Yeah, let me let me add something. There was a a, a category of organizations I mentioned only briefly, but I I really should call not much more, which is there's groups like the Indoor Air Quality Association. Uh, that is an organization of practitioners, Uh, they put out a newsletter, um, they have annual conferences, uh, groups like ASHRAE uh, that does a lot of work on indoor air quality. So these professional organizations are actually tremendously valuable resources. In fact, Uh, those two organizations, IAQA and and ASHRAE, have just reams and reams of information available some of it's some of it's uh, for good reason uh, uh, reserved for members, but uh, if you're out there practic- practicing, I, I, I strongly encourage that. There's National Environmental Health Association, uh, the American Institute of uh, uh, the Association of Industrial Hygienists, American Industrial Hygiene Association, A.I.H.A. Yep. Um, so professional organizations. Now, getting getting back to your question, um, it, it's. I actually as a scientist I'd say in, in uh I I like to not prejudge anything. I like uh, based on who did it. I like to really assess the quality of the information uh based on what's presented and what was done. Um so when I see uh a, a, a scientific paper or report that was published by someone that was funded by whatever, the tobacco industry even, okay. Uh a lot of people will just write that off. And, 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 I, and I think that's sometimes unfair to the people who do the research. I, I would look at it with uh, you know, a discerning eye and take that into consideration um, when, when reviewing it, but I wouldn't necessarily reject it. That being said, yeah, I think when you're looking at research that is put forward by a commercial interest, somebody who really stands to make or lose money based on the outcome of that, I think you have to be incredibly skeptical. It doesn't mean you necessarily reject it, but you just have to recognize that the people who sponsored that have, have an interest. Um, so I, I think that that, that, that casts a little bit of a shadow and certainly it should, it should raise everyone's skepticism. And, uh, and so when you're, when you're looking at those results, ask yourself, okay, uh, what, what did the people who paid for this stand to gain from these results who did the research, right? so if it if it was if it was paid by the uh, Candlemakers Association, okay, uh, for example, uh, but the research was done by professors at uh, let's say Harvard or Stanford or some you know highly reputable research institution, um, you know those professors are probably not going to sell their reputation for the cost of one research project, mm-hmm. right? so so then you might say, well, yeah, sure, the candle makers, but, you know, maybe maybe, maybe it's right, and the, re- the reason the candle makers had to fund it is because no one else was going to fund it, and, uh, you know, those researchers from Stanford is not going to put their reputation on the line uh, for, for you know, being able to do one research project, right? They have to, their reputation is worth a lot more than that, so I'm going to give it a read and see if it makes sense. Um, but if it was done by, you know, some uh, consulting firm that you've never heard of, and, you know you, you don't have uh, any independent sense that they're reputable or or honest, then I would be skeptical and i i think I think uh, I've seen both of those cases right I've seen industry sponsored research that's actually very good uh, and I've seen unfortunately a lot of industry sponsored research which clearly had an agenda
0: and how important would it be in in most cases to have some kind of control wh- while you're doing a study i mean i've I've seen studies where there was you know results and claims made but no control to really you know help us determine if that claim was the result of what they were studying or not
2: yeah that that's an excellent point and it's one of the things that we look at uh kind of from the scientific methods good study design right so uh you you measure something happening in a home where something has been done to that home and uh you know the natural inclination is to say well you know it must be this thing but it could have been any number of other things so the way we do that is we we control so i'll give you uh some examples from from or we'll give you one example from our own research so we're interested in the question of whether uh controls for formaldehyde in homes formaldehyde is a a uh, respiratory irritant uh, and uh, uh, carcinogen and uh, over, still a lot of uncertainty about what the safe level was, but there's there's certainly a, a big prerogative to reduce formaldehyde levels. They used to be much higher. Uh, we used to put it as a byproduct of insulation. We've taken it mostly out of the insulation, but there's still a lot of formaldehyde in, in homes. So we're interested in whether or not um, uh, controls work, and specifically the question was, do Uh, Homes built with low-emitting materials, because you can buy low-emitting materials, uh, have lower formaldehyde concentrations after they're built. Pretty straightforward question. Um, In order to answer that question, though, we couldn't just go into some homes that were built with low-emitting materials and measure formaldehyde and compare that to formaldehyde measures in a random collection of other homes. Why? Because formaldehyde, uh, generally is higher in new homes versus older homes because it, it, basically, uh, out gases or, or, uh, de- from the material over time. So, so we had to look at homes, uh, the conventional homes, homes that had not low emitting materials, uh, that were of the same age. Okay. Uh, and, and when they're not exactly the same age, you have to adjust for that. And then it also turns out that the formaldehyde emissions vary with different seasons because, uh, during the summer, your materials and your cavities heat up more, and then they emit more formaldehyde. So then we had to make sure that those measurements were done in the same season and the same temperatures. And then uh, if you have higher air exchange rates in your house, more outdoor air exchange, you're going to dilute the formaldehyde more. So then we had to make sure that they were done with similar air exchange rates, and when they weren't, we had to make an adjustment for that. So these are all the – and there were some other factors as well. So in order to answer that relatively simple question – we had to control for other things that we know affect the formaldehyde concentrations. And I think, unfortunately, um, science is not so cheap to do really good scientific research. Sometimes you could do things uh, kind of on the cheap, but for the most part, it takes, a, a, a takes an investment to make sure it's done in a way that is, uh, produces reliable and true results. So, uh, and, and the, the difficulty is, uh, we don't expect everyone to be a professional researcher any more than we expect everyone to be a physician or a lawyer or anything else, right? So people go to experts for for this kind of knowledge. Uh, the practitioners, they have a lot on their hands to try to figure out how to apply the science to solving real problems. Uh, and as I said, there's a gap between what we do in the science sometimes and what the real problems are, so they're they're bridging that gap. Um, and And they're also hopefully... Helping, uh, developing enough of the kind of uh, sense that you talked about, Joe, where they're looking for the controls or they're asking the questions. When, I, when they read a study, if you're a practitioner out there and you read a study, ask yourself, did they account for other things that could explain what they saw, okay. what they reported, the outcome that they reported, did they look at other things that could have caused that, and did they control for those? And if not, then you should discount the that research somewhat, it may still be right. It doesn't mean it's necessarily wrong, but, but it's not a reliable result that you should depend on.
0: Okay, and to go back to your example, how did the study turn out with respect to using the low-emitting uh, formaldehyde products. Do they seem to uh, be better?
2: Yeah, we saw we saw pretty substantial uh, reductions. Uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think they were in the order of 25 to 35 percent reductions okay. uh, from formaldehyde levels and with the low emitting materials. So it it works. Okay, <laughs> so good. go ahead, go ahead and use those low emitting materials um to reduce your formaldehyde levels
0: now that's formaldehyde and um well let's let's i'll come back to that if we get time a little bit later i'm curious how does your group choose what pro what projects what type of research to to work on
2: that's a good question so uh it, it's it's a we um try to figure out uh and I've, I work in a couple of different groups, so it's it's uh, and it's not the same in each group. But in general, um, we try to identify what we think are really important questions, uh, research uh, that will help the field move forward, help us in our general understanding, but also with a lot of practical implications. We try to figure out what are the what are the uncertainties or unknowns in this field of indoor air quality uh, that if we could. If we could understand them better, would help improve indoor air quality in real buildings, hmm. right? And and in one of the groups is the residential buildings group, where we do a lot of work with the Building America program, Department of Energy's Building America program. Okay. And that's a re, that's a research to practice program. So they uh, the Building America program supports uh, both researchers, national lab researchers, and then they have a, a private sector and consortia that. Uh, apply for, for, for programmatic grants from them. And then, um, but there's a big eye on practice. So that that's a program that's really trying to provide the information that the, the, the industry and the market needs to advance to make better, lower energy, more durable, more comfortable, better indoor quality homes, right? So they're not just trying to make low energy homes, they're trying to make great homes. And they're trying to give the industry the tools they need. So for that work, what we're trying to do is we're trying to say, okay, what are the problems that uh, that practitioners, builders, retrofit contractors are going to uh, need solutions for five years from now, ten years from now, right? Because if if, if we want to give them, if we're if we're if we're trying now to solve a problem that somebody has now, then they're going to be waiting around for that solution, right? Because it takes some time to do the to do the work. So we actually have to look forward and say, okay. Um, if we're doing our job well then we produce something and then t- today and tomorrow somebody asks for that thing that we just produced hmm. right so uh, i'll give you an example of that uh, we're building homes tighter we united uh, you know, states america we talk about making america great right yep. well america's america's doing pretty well right now of building really great homes the builders have stepped up to the challenge and you know, it's not uniform throughout the industry, but there's, there's quite a number of builders who are building really fabulous homes right now, and they're looking for ways to build those homes even better. And they're looking to programs like Building America to tell them how to do that. Um, so uh, as we build these homes tighter, then uh, the importance of providing mechanical ventilation becomes more important, right? So in the old days, uh, we didn't need to put in an exhaust fan or provi- provide constant mechanical ventilation because your home is like a sieve, so there's always air moving in and out. Now, that doesn't happen with new homes. So we, we build them tight, but then you have to ventilate them right. Now, it raises a question, how much ventilation is needed? Okay, uh, ASHRAE six, uh, has a, a committee, the ASHRAE organization has a committee that uh, produces a ventilation standard for acceptable indoor air quality and residential units and uh, there's numbers that they have in terms of requiring ventilation. They uh, do a really great job of trying to figure out what those numbers should be, Uh, but it's based on a lot of historical um, uh, kind of continuity, and there's really good questions about um, uh, what's the right number for the minimum ventilation rate. Can we provide ventilation at different times of day that maybe save some energy? Is that equivalent? Um, What other kind of – can we if we control sources – can we turn down ventilation? Mm-hmm. Um, for example, if you do particle filtration, then can you provide less outdoor air and still provide good indoor air quality? So we're working on trying to figure out a lot of those questions. To get back to your to your question, though, so we do our best to try to figure out what the questions are, but but we we don't have a a, a, a set budget every year that we get just you know for being here, right? So we have to we have to convince uh government agencies privates we get money from from industry- we get money from um, industrial groups as well um uh for example uh we have to convince somebody that something is important enough for us to do the research right hmm. where okay. we, we have to convince the building america program hey here's a set of questions that are really important for us to answer, and then the building America program they look at their research uh portfolio and they look at their research roadmap and they say, yeah, that that, that aligns with what we think is important. So we're going to support you to do that research.
0: I see. Cliff, let me make sure you get a chance to jump in here if you have a question.
2: Thanks. Um,
1: What are some of the more important studies that have come out of LBL that um, people investigating and remediating indoor environmental quality issues should know about?
2: Oh that's a that's a good question and and uh, I was going to answer that the answers to the first part of that question may be more broad than the answers to the second part so um and and the second part of your question was that, that people who are doing remediation should know about if I, if I heard that correctly um, and uh, uh maybe I'll answer that one uh first and then I'll go back to the more general what are some important studies because there's some work that we've done that I think is important to improve our general understanding of indoor air quality Um, that's maybe a step away from the practitioner. But uh, uh, certainly, going way back, our group has been doing research for several decades, and and one of the early topics we spent a lot of effort on, uh, well, there was formaldehyde for sure, but radon. We did a lot of work on radon, trying to understand how you control radon. So a lot of the radon control systems and assessments that we have now uh, developed from, from work that we did, and we're very proud of that work. That was uh, quite a while ago. We did a lot of work on secondhand tobacco smoke, so helping to establish uh, the ha- how hazardous secondhand smoke is, uh, leading into uh, thirdhand smoke. So uh, I don't know if you two or your, reader, your listeners are familiar with this term, thirdhand smoke, but this actually came out of that research I referred to earlier uh, where we realized uh... what others had realized too which was that the chemicals from uh... tobacco use would actually stick around long after you were done smoking right so uh... the example i always give is 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 when you come home from the bar and you still smell like tobacco smoke now thankfully in lots of places now the bars don't have tobacco smoke anymore because we've we've made restaurants and bars smoke free in lots of places uh... but lots of places they do so what happens when you come home smelling like tobacco smoke is you're carrying those chemicals back home with you. They stick to your clothes and your hair, et cetera. Well, the same thing happened in your house, right? So, so we had known for a long time that, uh, that these chemicals were, you were basically uh, coating your house with the, the chemicals from tobacco, okay? And, and there was, a, there was a, a sense that maybe that wasn't such a good thing, um, but it took a while uh, for, before we could actually identify kind of a smoking gun, if you will, of, of how exactly is this harmful. Uh, and, and it was our group here at LBL that uh, found uh, uh, at least one mechanism. I think there's there's plenty more uh, where the nicotine that was sorbed to surfaces would react with a, a, a chemical in the air called HONO, uh, and, uh, which I, which which forms, when that reaction happens, it forms something called a tobacco-specific nitrosamine. And the tobacco-specific nitrosamines are some of the most harmful chemicals in tobacco smoke. So then now we have a mechanism where uh, the chemicals from the tobacco that are stuck to your your walls and carpet and everything else are reacting with something that we know is in the air. Uh, And that that HONO chemical gets produced, for example, by uh, gas combustion. So when you use your gas stove, you'll, you'll get a lot of HONO comes in from outdoors. Uh it's formed in some other ways as well. So 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 that 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 reaction uh sort of demonstrates a, a, a real established uh hazard from the sorbed uh uh nicotine and and other, and and and, and you know. With that, there's probably many other hazards, but that was one we were able to um, identify. So we're pretty proud of that. Um, done a lot of work uh, on filtration. Again, uh, something has been kind of ongoing for several decades. Uh, filtration gets better, um, and we stick with it. Uh, looking at a lot of work on productivity and health. So one of the uh, big findings, a colleague of mine, Bill Fisk, uh, he sh- He demonstrated that uh, indoor air quality wasn 't just a good thing for our health it actually helped health productivity so workers are more productive when they 're healthy and when they're you know not getting headaches and things like that from bad indoor air quality and and It turns out that the value of indoor air quality for productivity is tremendous right so there's a health benefit but there's also this productivity benefit so for for offices and and commercial spaces um, and in recent years, we've done a lot of work uh, uh, with this residential building systems group looking at indoor air quality in very energy efficient uh, homes. so and we've we've shown uh, through a number of studies that you can improve indoor air quality, you improve indoor air quality while you're making your home more energy efficient. So it doesn't have to be a choice. it It actually can be a synergy. So you do both at the same time. And when you're doing these kinds of renovations or retrofits for energy efficiency, very often the indoor air quality improvements are not uh, nearly as expensive as if you were doing them separately. So you just, by paying attention to both things at the same time, you can achieve both uh, very cost-effectively. That's you, a little smattering. Yeah, well, too many, too many, too many to, too many to really to go into all the details, but that gives you some sense.
0: Let me get just thank a you. little detail on the last one, and then we've got to break and, and thank our sponsors. So, when we're improving the energy consumption in a home, at the same time, we want to, and and you know, I see more of this help improve the indoor air quality. Do you have any idea? How many of the programs out there now are combining you know using the combined approach as opposed to just worrying about energy
2: oh uh quite a lot actually so um I'll give you a couple of examples uh the uh, the starting with the Department of energy's weatherization assistance program okay uh, they uh the weatherization assistance program uh requires as part of their package that if you air seal a home uh tightly then you want to give it mechanical ventilation that's consistent with the ASHRAE ventilation standard. So right there it's kind of built into the program. Mm-hmm. Uh the EPA it's it's, an, it's another of our sponsors that indoor environments division. Uh they produced a really great document um and, and I'm going to get the exact name incorrect but basically it's 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 indoor air quality guidelines for retrofits. So when you do energy efficiency retrofits, there's a document that tells you all the things that you can look for to uh, as opportunities to improve indoor air quality at the same time and certainly to make sure that you don't make anything worse. And it's a very readable guide. They spent a couple of years doing it, um, really high quality and, and, and uh, just a great resource for practitioners. They have one for single family uh, and then they have one for multifamily. That I can uh, again, I give you the links to those because you should you should put those up on your website for the for your audience. Um, Department of Housing and Urban Development. That you know, one of the I it may be the biggest uh, land management group in uh, sorry property management group in the in the U.S. Uh, we work with their Healthy Homes, uh, their H- H- office of Healthy Homes and Lead Hazard Control, and they um, incorporate indoor air quality into their programs as well. So. Uh, they have housing specifications for manufactured housing, um, certainly in a lot of their operational stuff, uh, a lot of state programs. Uh, one, another another thing that we've done research on uh, to contribute to uh, and, and, and is done in programs is uh, what we call combustion safety testing. Mm-hmm. So when you're doing uh, an energy efficiency retrofit, you're air sealing a home. Um, by making the home tighter, uh, you potentially could uh, make it more difficult for a natural draft appliance to establish draft. So one of the uh, features that's very common in these energy efficiency programs is to make sure that you don't adversely affect the safety of the combustion appliances, right? So uh, they go through a series of tests to, to make sure that the appliances will still operate correctly in this tighter home. Um, so, so I think a lot of great things are happening out there, and and uh, and there's a lot of people working in these programs, both uh, on the public side and the private sector, uh, who we go to conferences, and, and a lot of these are retrofit contractors. They're very attuned to this, and they're very, it's very important to them to make sure that they leave the home in a better condition for indoor air quality when they when they
0: start. And they are. Be- much more interested at least in my experience recently over the last few years in making sure they include indoor air quality than they may have been five or ten years ago and certainly more so than back in the 70s when we first started tightening up buildings without any concerns for without enough thought about indoor air quality i think we learned a lot of hard lessons back then and it sounds like you know from your experience it's it's being um, those lessons are being learned and then um, when we bring out the new programs they're built right in
2: Yeah, there's still a lot of work to do so you know I don't think we're I don't think our job is done um, but I, I just want to call out because again we, we, we go to a lot of conferences where we are presenting to practitioners who are taking time out of their professional lives uh to come in and 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 learn and and improve their education and knowledge uh there's groups like the affordable comfort institute home performance uh 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 resnet uh, uh just a, again the Air quality association there's lots of groups that are uh that have conferences uh to uh help these professionals learn kind of state of the art uh, techniques and knowledge and 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 lots of people show up you know Thousand people show up to these conferences. Many hundreds of people. Uh, these are professionals who are coming to uh, learn how to provide this for their clients. So I- I'm always very impressed with with how much they dedicate themselves. Uh, again, not everybody, but there's a lot of people out there. So if, if you're what I, the message, if you have anybody out there who's just a homeowner listening to this, is if, if your contractor doesn't seem like they, you know, know anything about indoor air quality or or uh, don't have a lot of concern about it. Uh, look around because there are people out there who who really are uh, spending the time to figure this stuff out.
0: I think that's a great take-home message, and we'll get those links to Cliff so he can put them in his blog. But uh, let's let's uh, stop and thank our sponsors, and then when we come back, we're going to go into a little more detail on the PM 2.5 workshop and uh, some of the some of the things that came out of your presentation there. And thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org.
1: The Restoration and Specialty Cleaners Association who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Their website is trsca.org. Thanks to our advertisers.
0: Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends
1: Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Visit them at legends-enviro.com and, of course, our marquee sponsors, John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at their website, j-o-n-d-o-n.com. That's johndon.com.
0: Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at CleanFactsWithAnX.com.
1: IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net.
0: And Particles Plus, they are engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters Air quality monitoring instrumentation and vacuum pump technology. Particlesplus.com. Count on us. Please be sure
1: to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products.
0: Okay, we're back for the second half of our interview. We've got Dr. Brett Singer from the Lawrence Berkeley Labs. And I, I wanted to go into, you know, we, we had uh, gotten a chance to talk a little bit at the workshop they had at the National Academy of Science, and uh, it was two days of presentations on particulate matter and how particulate matter affects health and how, um, you know, what we can do to to help, I guess, do a better job of of making sure that particulate matter in indoor environments is not as much of a problem for people as it it seems to be and has been. What was the big takeaway for you? you know we saw all these f- f- tremendous speakers what did you pick up from that conference that you took back and thought you know i'm glad i was there i'm glad i uh you know i'm glad i, I listened to that particular presentation or that point
2: uh well, well there's there's two levels uh, th- 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 The the most direct honest question was um i'm always so impressed with how great my colleagues are and doing this work uh you know, in a lot of scientific fields, there's a lot of ego and a lot of people who uh, really, um, you know, think highly of themselves and their accomplishments. And, and uh, in this field, the people, so many people who are really just dedicated to uh, what they're doing and trying to just make contributions and really, really bright people who are, work very, very, very hard um, and, and are just really committed to, to trying to make a difference and trying to, trying to provide useful information for the world. So that was, a, that was a, my, my first take-home. Uh, that might not be that, that relevant to your to listeners, um, although I'm sure they're glad to hear that. Uh, in, terms of the, in terms of the content, um, there were several things. So, so I, I, I think, first of all, that uh, there, uh, we've really learned a lot about uh, understanding the sources of particulate matter in homes. Uh, understanding um, the hazards of particulate matter and, and also uh, controls. Okay, so there's a lot of, lots that we have learned. Um, we, we probably, um, but there's still we, things we don't know. Uh, certainly we know a lot more about outdoor. A lot of what we know about particulate matter, the health effects of particulate matter is uh, based on looking at the results of higher concentrations of particles outdoors so thankfully uh we have a long record of epa uh uh, mo- uh epa kind of uh, designed or approved monitoring stations the monitoring's actually not done by epa it's done at the state and local level okay so it's a uh, those people who are, you know, anti-federal government, uh, <laughs> it, it's a, it's actually a good model because the EPA just kind of sets the guidelines for how the monitoring should be done, but then it, it gets actually done at the state and local level. But but those data that we collect uh, have been a really good investment for the public because. Because then researchers can go and say, okay when particles particle concentrations outdoors get higher what happens well we see a lot more people show up at, at hospi- in hospitals with a variety of of, of adverse health outcomes respiratory uh, cardiovascular et cetera um, so so we, we can we, we can even see things like uh, you know when there's higher particle levels then what are the effects on uh, on uh, fetal development for example so we look at we look at the uh, uh, Characteristics of the of the of the infants okay that are born uh, from mothers who experience higher air pollution, and, and and we're seeing more and more research in that area. So so we know a lot about the health effects of outdoor particulate matter. Uh, it's interesting. We still um, the the particles that get produced indoors are similar to uh, particles that are produced outdoors, but but not to the mixture. So the mixture you see indoors. Uh, can be a little different and, and there's still some uncertainty about that um, uh, and uh, uh, the, in terms of controls there's it's you know really is possible to uh, reduce your exposure to to particulate matter inside your home uh, your your home being in a home in a building affords you opportunities for controls uh, that you don't have if you're you know living in a in a very open space like a, you know a, a a, a leaky building is it's a lot harder to control your uh, particle um, concentrations still still can do it, but um, living in a nice tight home, you really have a lot of opportunities to do that. Which, is, which begs the next question, right? Which is, well, how, how do you do that?
0: Right? Exactly. How do you, how do, what are the best? I was waiting best? for you to
2: jump in with that <laughs> question, but I'll just be asking myself. Now go uh, what,
0: what are the best, you know, methods for reducing that exposure indoors? And right. let's go into your presentation, too, a little, just so people know. You spoke about doing so in lower socioeconomic status households as well. So maybe we should start with the ones that just about anybody can afford
2: yeah so so I'll start broadly and then I'll get to the low socioeconomic status and broadly uh, this question comes up of whether or not it's good to to, to air seal my house to, to tighten up my house tighten up my shell because a lot of people like their houses to breathe okay uh, and uh, you know obviously every homeowner should make their own decisions um, but I guess what I'm here to say is i I think we, we know that we can make homes that are still safe um, and and can even be safer and more protective one of the advantages to air sealing your home is that you can better control the air coming into your home you can control the rate at which it comes in and depending on what kind of ventilation system you have you can uh, control the pathways Um, when you have a tight home air comes into your house less rapidly and so it sort of slows the rate of air from outdoors coming into your home Um, Unless of course you want it to come in by opening the windows, which you can always do, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and what that means is that when the particles come in, there are other mechanisms they get removed from ventilation, right? So that but that's kind of an, uh, a net zero thing. So uh, if, if you know you bring something in from outdoors, you remove it with ventilation, so your indoor concentration over time will be similar to your outdoors. So carbon monoxide, uh, if you don't have any carbon monoxide sources inside your home, over time the carbon monoxide levels inside your home will be the same as they are outside because it's, it's kind of non-reactive. It doesn't interact with your house. Particles are a little different. Particles actually will deposit on the, on the materials in your house, so they get removed from the air through these passive means, okay? And that puts aside filtration. So if you, if you slow the rate at which you're bringing particles in from outside, then you will actually reduce your indoor concentration of outdoor particles. Now we know outdoor particles are hazardous, so so you reduce your hazard. Now, if you're perfectly healthy, you have no respiratory issues, you don't have asthma, you don't have whatever, it it, it maybe isn't as important, okay. But if you have COPD or asthma or some other uh, health health condition, or if you have uh, uh, young children in your home who have still developing lungs, um, then uh, controlling that outdoor air pollution. It can be really helpful. And that would be uh, both the particles, particulate matter, or PM2.5. Diesel particulate matter is something that's outdoors we know is particularly harmful. Uh, Ozone, okay, is is another one of these chemicals that will actually interact with the materials in your home. So by slowing the rate you bring it in, you actually reduce your exposure to ozone indoors. Okay, so that takes care of the outdoor part. But then the question is, well, what happens if if I uh, have a particle emissions indoors, right? Right. Uh, My concentrations are going to be higher indoors because I'm not going to ventilate them out as quickly. And that's true. So it means that when you have a tight home, you have to be more attentive to uh, the the particles that you're generating inside your home. So what are the things that generate particles inside your home? Well, cooking is a big one, okay? And uh, before I say anything else, cooking is a good thing. I encourage people if they can find the time to cook their own food, it can be really fun. You can make really healthy food. You can make really tasty food. Um, so so we're pro-cooking, um, but you uh, should be aware that when you're cooking, you are producing not just particles, but there are other chemicals that get produced from there's a chemical called acrolein, for example, that gets produced from uh, from uh, heating up oils. Okay, that is a uh, irritant chemical. So you produce these uh, chemicals from cooking that can be harmful. Um, so one of the things you can do is that when you're cooking, is to use a good kitchen ventilation system, preferably a range hood that's over your stove. And you would you would, I recommend you start the range hood before you start cooking, so before you turn your burner on. And then let it run for maybe five minutes after you finish. Uh, and if you uh, if if you can cook on your back burners, then your range hood's going to be a lot more effective. Uh, you don't have to always run it on high. If you're just doing a simple, you're boiling some water or cooking a, uh, I don't know, you're heating something that's going to just, it's heating some sauce in a pan or something. Uh, maybe you, leave it, you, you put it on the back burner, you turn your range hood on low and maybe it's good enough. Um, But if you're cooking a two or three burner meal, then you want to put your range hood on high if you can. Again, make sure that it's actually venting to the outdoors. If your range hood's not venting to the outdoors, you want to increase the ventilation through some other exhaust fan or opening a window. So we want you to cook, but then just make sure you take care of those pollutants when you you do it. Um, And then enjoy the food. Um, uh, uh, Candles is another big source. Candles Mm -hmm. and incense, right? People like to burn candles and incense, but they should realize they're producing a lot of these fine particles. Um, There's not a tremendous amount of research. In fact, there's very little research on the the kind of the harmfulness of the particles that are produced from candles and incense. Hmm. But I think the precautionary principle would say, we know that other particles, particles of those sizes are generally harmful for you. So until there's research showing that candles and incense particles are particularly non-harmful, you should assume they're harmful. Uh, So, you know, if, if that's something you like doing, then maybe you want to be operating an air filter or, um, and, and you can get some very quiet air filters to, uh, take care of those particles. Uh, you know, a lot of times you're not going to want to open a window, uh, or a couple windows when you're doing that because you're trying to create atmosphere, but just be aware that this is something that is, uh, producing, uh, uh, particles that is, that, that can be harmful to you. So try to have some control, um and then there's all kinds of other stuff like you know generally anything where you're burning something is going to produce a lot of particles so obviously people know cigarette smoke but you know pot smoke if you're if you're into that sort of thing then uh you know and 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 and, and not to mention the the primary smoke right so if you're smoking pot you're you're breathing in smoking pot the same stuff you're breathing in for the most part when you're smoking tobacco okay hmm. so uh it's it's not healthier for you than smoking cigarettes uh, and then the people around you are getting the secondhand smoke. Okay, and those chemicals are sorbing to. You. Now, there's not nicotine because that's specific to tobacco, but there's a lot of those other chemicals that are harmful to you are being produced from the pot So, so anytime you're burning something, um, natural gas is is uh, is uh, always comes up as an issue. Okay, so natural gas um, is is obviously a cleaner fuel, um, but but it still produces uh, ultrafine particles. And nitrogen dioxide. So, if you're using gas burners, it's very important uh, again to um, to vent. But even if you're using electric burners, you want to vent your kitchen. Um, so, so that's the particle stuff. Now, to answer your question about the low socioeconomic status, um, it was a talk, it was, I, and I commend the the uh, organizers of the of the meeting, uh, because a lot of the controls that you or I might use in our homes that uh, we think of as not so expensive, uh, might still be out of reach for somebody who's, you know, living paycheck to paycheck and, uh, you know, is, is on a uh, housing assistance and, you know, really has very few financial resources. Okay. So, um, and, and there aren't any easy answers there other than, um, in general source control. So, um, trying not to burn a lot of stuff inside your house, uh, Uh, trying to ventilate when you're using indoor sources. Um, And then, uh, you know, if you have a specific issue like asthma, then trying to get resources through your physician or medical care, if you have it, um, to uh, help control asthma, because you can do things for allergens and things like that. Uh, And I'm happy to talk more about it, but I've gone on for a while now, so I should let you guys ask another question.
0: Well, I I got a question for you. One of the things that Caught my attention, and I don't know if I misunderstood or if it's something that's not as big of an issue as i thought but and I can't remember who brought this up, but essentially that the particles change when they go from outdoors to indoors, and that I wasn't really that familiar with that. Can you expand on that a little for listeners?
2: Oh yeah, it's fascinating um uh and it's both fascinating and actually somewhat relevant, so Uh, Well, particles are uh, very complicated. There are, when we talk about particulate matter, PM2.5, another term would be aerosol. So aerosol is sort of the whole collection of different size and composition. So particles have both solid and liquid parts to them. They have uh, a variety of different chemicals involved in them. They have water associated with them. Uh, And then some of those chemicals... Um, actually partition or they, they, they divide themselves between being in the, in the condensed phase. So the part of the, the, the chemical will be both in the particle and as existing as a gas around the particle. Okay. Okay. So, so at, and, and water is one of those uh, chemicals. Okay. Water is a chemical mm-hmm. and we always have water in gas form. We call it humidity right? Uh, But then again, uh, some water will be associated with the particles. So when you take the aerosol, which is this collection of particles that have different sizes and different chemistry and components, uh, and you bring it from outdoor conditions to indoor conditions, um, you're going to change some of those features. So outdoors, if it's a, I don't know, let's say it's the middle of the winter, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Outdoors might be uh, 15 degrees Fahrenheit outside, and indoors, is a comfortable 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay, well, you've just heated everything up quite a lot. And that's going to change the amount that the water is going to be associated with the particles versus in the gas. It's going to change the amount that the other chemicals want to do that. And then uh, outdoors uh, might be, uh, you know, 35% or 40% relative humidity or, or even higher, 60%. But then when you, when you heat up that air, then indoors is much drier in the winter, Okay, so changing the humidity in the air is going to change things. And then f- flip that in the summer. So all these chemistry things are happening. And then again, as, as you bring particles indoors, if you have that nice tight house, and let's say you have an exhaust mechanical ventilation system, so then you're pulling air in through the, the gaps and the cracks. Okay, and then as the air is coming through your nice tight shell, some of the particles are going to be removed. And they're not all going to be removed uniformly, right? Some sizes will be removed preferentially over others right. and then over time those processes happen indoors so uh, what you the, the, the net result of that is even if you have no particles indoors your aerosol indoors that came from outdoors is going to look different not just in the total amount but in the in the characteristics of that aerosol it's going to look different indoors than it did when it was outdoors um, and we have, a, we have a whole lot of fun studying this stuff um, and, and and the net result of it is by understanding this stuff, we can better understand um, how to uh, control it right what what controls right. are suitable for different
0: different situations. Well, and I guess I don't know if if this is maybe my um, maybe I didn't understand this right, but then there's also chemical reactions with with ozone and maybe with other chemicals indoors that are coming from paints or whatever that also change things to some degree is that accurate to say?
2: Yes. Absolutely. So, um and and that's a whole other field of study, kind of the indoor chemistry. Yeah. Uh and uh and you know, while we're on that topic, we talked a little bit about filtration. Um I want to just quickly note uh in terms of new, you know, research results you can use. Uh what I will tell uh, uh, one caution I want to give, which is that there's a lot of um air cleaning systems that use chemistry in some way shape or form right so they're ionizing the air and uh and you know they talk about how creating ions is very helpful or um uh you know the the worst of yep yeah right so the worst of it is when it, these ozone air cleaners right so they're, they're they're producing ozone with the idea that you're going to react the ozone with all the uh, VOCs remove the VOCs and and that's going to produce some better you know indoor air quality. In general, um, I would say uh, people should be a little cautious about trying to do chemical experiments with the air in their home. So um, there are some chemistry-based air cleaners that can work very well, but if they're not working well, they can they can really do more harm than good. So uh, it's sort of a generic caution that uh, if you're, if you know, it's something I I, I wouldn't generically recommend. I would recommend against trying to use a, some kind of an air-cleaning device that's using some chemistry that you don't understand. And even if you think you understand it, be a little little skeptical of it. Ask a lot of questions, okay? Certainly you should ask the questions of, you know, what happens when this thing doesn't work right? How does it not work right? What are the hazards? You know, how do I know it's working right? How would I know if it stops working right? Uh, because... Uh, because there's, I think, not always good answers to those questions.
0: I think that's a great way to kind of wrap things up. I know you have to run, but we've got to get you back. I have another page of questions here we didn't get to. Um, I'd love to get you back to talk a little more about this in the future.
2: Happy to do it. I'm big fans of what you guys do, and just let me know, and I'll be here.
0: All right. Is there anything real quick you wanted to add before we go?
2: Uh uh, no, I just want to thank you guys, and and again, I want a uh, real shout out to all the really hard-working people. Uh, I, I, I tell you, there is one thing, which is there, um people in government often get a lot of uh, you know a lot of criticism. But we work with people at the state level, the Air Resources Board, the Energy Commission, EPA, people at the Department of Housing and Urban Development, uh, Department of Energy. There's a lot of really, really, really hard-working people, people who, who work nights and weekends to try to um, do their jobs well for the American people and for, you know, for the citizens of the states they're working for. And uh, uh, just, uh, just people should know that, that there's a lot of hard-working people out there who are, who are really trying to do their job uh, responsibly and, and use the, the, the taxpayer money well and, and do good for the people.
0: And don't always get enough credit for that. Well, thank yeah. you. Thanks. Take care, guys. I think that's a great way to end today's show, Dr. Brett. uh, Dr. Brett Singer, that was fascinating um, and a lot of fun. Uh, Cliff, anything you'd like to add before we wrap it up? Nope, nope. Uh, What I'll
1: do is I'll get the blog out, and then uh, I'll let Dr. Singer uh, put his,
0: you know, whatever links he would like to put on there uh, on the blog. Sounds good. So, folks, we'll be back next Friday. Actually, Cliff will be back next Friday with next week's episode of IAQ Radio. I'll be on the road. I'll try and join in, but uh, it could be tough. This is Radio Joe Yu saying thanks to this week's guest, Dr. Brett Singer. Of course, thanks to my co-host, co-host the Z Man, Cliff Slotnick. John, you gotta have faith at the controls. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. By the way, uh, keep checking out those YouTube versions of our show. They they work really well, actually, and um, we're starting to see some people looking at or listening to and uh, now watching the show via the youtube that we put up each week Uh, the link to the youtube version we put up each week on the website so we'll be back next friday at noon with the next episode of iaq radio
2: this has been another iaq radio production